You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. The South Korean Nuclear Research Organization sustained an apparent cyber espionage incident. Norway's investigation of its 2018 breach of government networks concludes that China's APT-31 was behind it. Poland accuses Russia in a long-running email hacking case. Our guest is Mark Testoni from SAP NS2 on where the Justice Department should focus during its upcoming cyber review. Chris Novak of Verizon on financial versus espionage breaches. And NATO seeks to clarify its policies in cyberspace, including a recommitment to Article 5 and a revision of the Talon Manual. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, June 21st, 2021. South Korea's nuclear research organization says it sustained a cyber attack and suspicions point toward North Korea. The South Korean Atomic Energy Research Institute, CARI, disclosed Friday that several unauthorized parties obtained access to their internal networks. The record reports that some of the infrastructure used in the intrusion was traceable to North Korea's Kim Suki group. CARI had initially denied that the incident had occurred— The Institute apologized Friday for its earlier statements. According to Bleeping Computer, the intrusion took place on June 14th, and the threat actor gained access through a VPN flaw. Earlier this month, Malwarebytes Lab published a report on Kim Suki, a threat actor generally believed to work for the Democratic People's Republic of Korea's Reconnaissance General Bureau, that is, for North Korea's intelligence service. Malwarebytes listed an extensive number of targets, including the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Republic of Korea First and Second Secretaries, the Trade Minister, the Deputy Consul General at Korean Consulate General in Hong Kong, the International Atomic Energy Agency Nuclear Security Officer, the Ambassador of the Embassy of Sri Lanka to the Republic of Korea, and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade Counselor. Norway has attributed a 2018 breach of its government IT network to China. Specifically, the Police Security Service, known by the acronym PST, said the cyber espionage incident was the work of APT-31. The PST stated, quote, The investigation revealed that the actor succeeded in acquiring administrator rights that gave it access to centralized computer systems used by all state administration offices in the country— 
The actor also succeeded in transferring some data from the office's systems. No reliable technical findings have been made of what information was transferred, but the investigation shows that there were probably usernames and passwords associated with employees in various state administration offices. End quote. Warsaw says its recent cyber attack was Moscow's work, or at least the work of threat actors working from Russia. Senior members of Poland's government met last week for a closed-door discussion of an email hacking incident. On Friday, Deputy Prime Minister Jarosław Kaczynski said, as Reuters quotes him, The analysis of our services and the secret services of our allies allow us to clearly state that the cyber attack was carried out from the territory of the Russian Federation. Its scale and range are wide. End quote. Emails belonging to members of parliament and government officials were accessed, as were some emails belonging to members of their families. The incident seemed to have no particular bias for or against any political party, as multiple parties were affected. According to Bleeping Computer, the attacks affected at least 30 members of parliament, officials, and journalists, with the campaign beginning last September. The record says that Poland's internal security agency has notified its NATO allies of recent Russian cyber attacks, the goal of which, Polish officials say, has been to hit Polish society and destabilize the country. An EU diplomat familiar with the incident told Politico that, quote, on Friday, Poland handed over to the EU member states, the European Commission and the Council, a document on the details of cyber attacks carried out in recent days. That diplomat also said that operational and technical analysis carried out by Polish national security incident response teams confirmed that the infrastructure and modus operandi used during cyber attacks were the same as those used by Russian-sponsored entities. End quote. Speculation in the press suggests that the email theft may have been the work of Russia's SVR. The statements by Polish authorities are worth reviewing in the context of the communique NATO issued last week after its Brussels summit and two days before Wednesday's meeting between Russian President Putin and U.S. President Biden. The Atlantic Alliance began by reiterating its commitment to Article 5, the collective defense agreement under which an attack on one member is regarded as an attack against all. It also called out the increasing tempo of Russian hybrid operations, specifically including cyber operations, disinformation, and the toleration of cybercrime. The communique said, quote, In addition to its military activities, Russia has also intensified its hybrid actions against NATO allies and partners, including through proxies. This includes attempted interference in allied elections and democratic processes, political and economic pressure and intimidation, widespread disinformation campaigns, malicious cyber activities, and turning a blind eye to cyber criminals operating from its territory, including those who target and disrupt critical infrastructure in NATO countries. End quote. With respect to cyber attacks in particular, the communique said that cyber threats to the security of the alliance are complex, destructive, coercive, and becoming ever more frequent. This has been recently illustrated by ransomware incidents and other malicious cyber activity targeting our critical infrastructure and democratic institutions, which might have systemic effects and cause significant harm. In the event of a cyber attack, the North Atlantic Council would decide on a case-by-case basis whether to invoke Article 5. NATO's comprehensive cyber defense policy promises to actively deter, defend against, and counter the full spectrum of cyber threats, 
including those conducted as part of hybrid campaigns in accordance with international law. And indeed, that international law continues to evolve as nations seek to achieve greater clarity over what's permissible and impermissible action in cyberspace. The Washington Post reports that the Talon Manual on the International Law Applicable to Cyber Operations, the NATO-sponsored document that's occupied a leading position framing discussion of cyber conflict, will be undergoing its third revision, the first since 2017. The revision won't come quickly. A five-year process is envisioned. Among the aims of the revision are to clarify what commentators are calling the red lines that nation-states would cross at their peril and to help dampen the possibility that retaliation might lead to uncontrolled escalation. The Economist sees this convergence of cybercrime and state-directed hacking as a defining feature of next-gen bank robbery, whether in the form of privateering, as observers have seen in the activities of Russian ransomware gangs, or in state toleration of cybercrime, a more charitable reading of the Russian gang's activities, or even in direct theft by the states themselves, as seen in the operations of North Korea's Lazarus Group. The relationship can be close, complex, and deniable. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. On the heels of several high-impact cyber attacks, the U.S. Justice Department recently announced a 120-day review of their cybersecurity strategy. Joining me to discuss that move is Mark Testoni, 
CEO of SAP's national security arm, SAP NS2, which provides cybersecurity and secure cloud solutions to U.S. government agencies. You know, we've had a series of events, and obviously that are pretty significant in the cyber arena in recent months. Going back to the fall, the solar winds and hafnium situation, and then most recently, Colonial, and now even today, we have a meatpacking company out of Brazil that's been affected, it's, that's affecting us. The net is, is I think there's an overall genesis or awareness of the cyber threat implications that are much broader than the average person normally sees. And so as the new administration's coming in, Many of the segments of government are looking at this problem, and injustice has a very important role in, in cyber from a standpoint of it to play with the FBI. And even on a broader level, there's a, there's a, cyber, a large cyber division within justice. And I think they're stepping up to take a step back and a lead to say, hey, what should we be doing inside the federal government better? And perhaps more importantly, what should we be doing not only inside the government, but even beyond the walls of the government to create a, a, a greater sphere of collaboration? So I think just the nature of the threat, the evolution of the threat. And now it's, it's what's interesting in these latest attacks is they're becoming more on the, in the face of mainstream America. And, and it really shows the relationship between individuals, both as, as employees and companies and in themselves and how they implicate this entire cyber. And where do you suppose they stand in, in, or in terms of um, being able to collaborate with the private sector and, and to really execute on, on the plans that they come up with? Dave, that's a million-dollar question. Or I guess in the old days, they would have said it was a $64,000 question. <laughs> Interestingly, there have been many calls. A Solarian Commission, Senator King, actually, I heard him recently talking about this. He wrote a, an op-ed in one of the papers talking about the need for collaboration. The, the problem I see <clears throat> with collaboration in general is the government views it as the private sector needs to share threat information and or breach information with the government because to help the government better understand the threat profile and to quote, get assistance. I really think there needs to be an approach to this that's different than the past. It needs to be true collaboration. And that's what's missing from even Senator King's remarks and others. It's about bringing not only the collection and sharing of information together, but the sharing of talent and resources. To me, that's critically important. And right now, I don't believe we have that strong form to be able to do that. Where do we stand right now when it comes to trust between the government and the private sector? I mean, is that a is that a tenuous relationship? Is is it healthy? What, what's your experience there? I mean, it's a mixed bag to some degree, Dave. I mean, companies get leery when they open their kimonos at times to the federal government because they feel they potentially could face some sort of prosecutorial risk or other because maybe they didn't do things correctly. I'm not saying that companies and an organization shouldn't be pursued when they, they're negligent, but we want to not make that the first thing that, that organizations think about when they're in a collaborative mind. So we've got to create a forum that allows and policies that allow to make it easier for companies to feel comfortable in that environment. I'm confident that we will come to a place in the America and the United States we often explore lots of ways to solve problems, and then we finally get around to doing the right thing, and I think we will here. 
The strength of this country has always been innovation and the openness and freedoms that we have are both opportunities for us and part of our greatness, but they also make it easier for state actors and others to attack us. I think we're beginning to recognize that. And as a result, I think we'll do it. I think if you and I are talking in a couple of years, we'll see great progress in this area. That's Mark Testoni from SAP NS2. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Chris Novak. He's the global director of Verizon's Threat Research Advisory Center. Chris, always great to have you back. Um, I want to touch today on some stuff I know you've been tracking in terms of Financial versus espionage breaches, specifically um, the A4 threat handbook. What are you guys working on there? Sure. Yeah, great uh, Great to be on the show again, Dave. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, when we look at, you know, everybody tracks on the, the Verizon Data Breach Investigations Report. And one of the things that some people, if you've been tracking it since the beginning, you're familiar with the A4 model, which was the way we classified all the four A's, actors, actions, assets, and attributes of a given incident. And so what we've done is essentially publish what we call the A4 Threat Handbook to kind of help better put perspective on how we look at those four A's. And then also, in particular, comparing and contrasting how they relate between financially motivated breaches and espionage motivated breaches. Hmm. Well, let's dig into that some. I mean, is there – first of all, I'm curious, is – are we seeing any sort of fuzzing between those two things? Is the, is the line a clear one? It's interesting that you ask that because when we look at it, you know, going back, you know, about 10 years at the data, we've actually kind of identified what we consider to be six different motives to cyber attacks. You see financial motivation, espionage, fun, grudge, convenience, and ideology. That's the way that we've grouped them. And the first two that I mentioned, financial and espionage, really are probably the most interesting just because they make up about 94% of all of what we see. The rest are really kind of a a, a small, small blur in the background. But when you ask about the, the line between the two, we actually see that if you look at the top targets for financially motivated breaches, the top three are financials, Not surprising there, at 29%, (laughs) accommodations at 16%, and retail at 11%. And I think a lot of that has to do with the sheer quantity of very directly related financial data that there is in those environments to steal. Mm -hmm. Versus if you look at the top three for espionage-motivated campaigns and breaches, you don't see those three in there at all. The top one is public sector at 29%. Manufacturing at 21%, and 
and professional services at 10%. And I think the, the reason we're not seeing as much blurring between the two is you look at espionage, it's almost entirely going after intellectual property and trade secrets. And if you kind of look at the mishmash of all the different industries that you're looking at, you know, you kind of see a pocket of, of real deep, valuable intellectual property in the, the public sector manufacturing professional services side of things. Or even on the public sector side, you get a lot of state secrets, whereas on the financial side, you know, that, that data is typically commingled in different types of institutions. Hmm. And how does that uh, extend to the threat actors themselves? I mean, do they tend to silo themselves into, you know, this group is focused on financial, this group is focused on espionage? What are you seeing there? Yeah, interestingly enough, um, what we typically see there is on the financially motivated attacks, it is almost exclusively organized crime that is behind a lot of that is is typically what we're Mm. seeing. And not terribly surprising organized crime since the beginning of when we were tracking probably, you know, criminal statistics. That's typically what they were motivated by was, you know, financial gain. Um, Whereas on the espionage side of things, typically what we see there is it is either uh, nation state or state affiliated is is typically the leading elements of it. And then depending on, you know, if you kind of trail down from there, you may see some level of kind of corporate espionage at the next rung lower, but it is, I'd say, a fairly distant kind of second or third. Now, the the A4 threat handbook, I mean, is this uh, help organizations – uh, you know, sort of dial in their risk profile for for knowing what they should suspect they should defend against? Yeah, that's exactly right. Help them be able to do a couple of things. One is so that they can classify and categorize their incidents in a manner that is similar to the DBIR. Because we know a lot of organizations, whenever a new version of that report comes out, the first thing they want to do is try to compare how do we look versus the data set as a whole? How do we look against our industry? If we want to compare ourselves apples to apples with our peers, how do we do that? Better understanding that A4 threat handbook will will actually help organizations kind of better characterize their own incidents and put them into the similar kind of reporting format that we use for the DBIR. So they actually have a better ability to, to compare and contrast against the broader data set, or what we're hoping is industry groups will will adopt the same thing and they'll be able to share and compare uh, data as well. All right. Well, Chris Novak, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dave. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. 
Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now. <laughs> 